how small I am that I realize that I have meaning in God's world. Not my world, not your world, God's world. So let's look at Psalm 8. If you want to turn there, I think the verses will be on the screen here as well. So this morning as we kind of guide us, use Psalm 8 to guide us through this look at the majesty of God. Now like some songs we sing, uh, in fact we sang How Great Thou Art this morning, right? O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hands have made. And it's a song to God. So when we were singing that, we were not singing to each other. We, we were singing in worship to God. We sang a song, How Great Is Our God. That was not directed at God. That was really, collectively, we're, we're sharing, how great is our God? Isn't our God great as we're singing? Well, here in Psalm 8, this is a psalm, a song that David is singing directly to God. And let's begin reading in verse 1. O Lord, Yahweh, the great I am, the creator of everything, O Lord, our Lord, Adonai, sovereign ruler, Ruler over all things. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This morning, I want us to look at these first, first four verses mainly, summarize the last few, and try to get a picture and a glimpse of the majesty, the greatness, and the glory of our God. So let's go look in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord. This, this first term, O Lord, is Yahweh, a term that the Jewish people would often not even utter in public because of the greatness of um, the majesty, the, the reverence that they would have for Yahweh, the great I am. As Moses asked, who should I tell him sent me? I am. O Lord, Yahweh. Then that next, our Lord, Adonai. Just not this great being, creator of all things, sustainer of life, but my Savior. The, the ruler, the Lord of my life. So here David pens, O Lord, our Lord, Yahweh, Adonai. And then that next, how majestic is your name? We'll spend a couple minutes here. And look, let's think of the word majestic. Majestic certainly carries this idea of powerful, excellent, huge. Majesty also carries the idea of royalty and power. Now, we probably, I don't know if we use this term a lot in America, but our friends across the pond would probably um, have a little bit more understanding, maybe at least uh, recognize or use the word majesty when they refer to her majesty, the queen, right? So maybe as her entourage comes by, if they're driving and all that goes by, there's a certain standing in awe and reverence of, of what this represents and the royalty and the power that her majesty, the queen, demonstrates or has. And this is not the kind of majesty that we're talking about here this morning. In fact, if, if her majesty, the queen, was to walk in these back doors, I was not able to arrange that. Um, 
But us common folk, it would probably be an awe-inspiring moment. That would be a pretty cool thing, right? And yet, what about when we enter God's presence? Well, what about when we see God? John 1.18, I think that will be on the screen here. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Then Exodus 33.18-20, through 20, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will pro- proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Why? Because his majesty and glory is more than I could ever comprehend. The manifestation of God's majesty would be more than my earthly body right now that I have could even take in and and live. I was speculating as I was considering this. And so let's Let's pretend if we can imagine 100% of God's majesty and glory. We can't handle a process. We can't even look at it. It would kill us, okay? I don't understand all that. So let's, let's lessen that and have a veiled manifestation of, let's just say we just have 1%, maybe a half a percent. And somehow we were able to look at this veiled manifestation, much lesser majesty and glory of God, and we were able to look and it not consume us. <clears throat> what would our response be? This, again, greatly scaled-down version of God's majesty and glory, I think our response would be, wow, God is beautiful, magnificent. More than, and as we're staying there in awe of this greatness and beauty that our, we're, we're struggling to comprehend, and yet we feel like we have to look away because of a reverent fear and awe and fear for our life. That's, that's a scaled-down version, right? Now, think of God in his, all of his glory and majesty. I, I've been thinking about this all week. I can't wrap my mind around it. God is so majestic and powerful. Psalm 93.1, this is a great verse that I've been thinking on, obviously, throughout this week. Psalm 93.1, the Lord reigns. He is robed In majesty, the Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He is clothed in what? He is clothed in majesty and strength. Now, clothes tell a lot about a person. They really do two things. So clothes uh, conceal, all right? And I'm thankful that we all came clothed today. That's That's a good thing. I appreciate that. But clothes conceal. Now, I have... I wear polos and khakis. That's pretty much what I wear. That's kind of what I have hanging up in my closet. I'm pretty boring. But I wore an extra large. I'm probably a large, but I wore an extra large. Why? Because I want to conceal the fact that I probably could lose a few pounds, all right? We use clothes to conceal, right? But clothes also do what? It, it reveals things, all right? I don't even know if Brandon is in here, but if Brandon was in here, you would, you would know if you were to be here throughout the week that he is a great Clemson fan, right? Yeah, right, what are we doing? You will never see him wearing Clemson. What is he going to wear? Georgia. You know, okay. He wears Georgia things all the time throughout the week, all right? He is a big Georgia fan. I don't know why. He's not even here to defend himself. We reveal things about ourselves. We also conceal. Charles Spurgeon states, Garments both conceal and reveal a person, and so does the creation of God. The universe conceals God. We can't see him in his infinite glory as he really is. 
but the universe also reveals God. And if the creation is filled with such majesty and beauty, how great must God be? It makes us feel how altogether inconceivable the personal glory of the Lord must be. If light itself is but his garment and veil, what must be the blazing splendor of his own essential being? That that is an awesome quote. God is clothed in majesty and splendor. It is who he is. We're still in verse 1. It goes on. It says, in all the earth, Psalm 8.1, in all the earth. God's glory is present in all the earth. We use the term God is imminent. Uh, Don't turn there, but Psalms 139, if we were to read that 7 through 12, it talks about the passage where, where I lay my head, God is there. He dwells in the uttermost parts of the sea. God is there. Why? Because God is in his creation. He is imminent. Continuing on in verse 1, glory above the heavens. He cannot be contained in the heavens. He is above the heavens. We say he is transcendent. God is both imminent and transcendent. 1 Kings 8.27, but God will indeed dwell on the earth. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built Next verse, Isaiah 40, 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. All of creation is a display of God's greatness and majesty, and he stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and we get to be part of this drama and show. A.W. Tozier says, God dwells in his creation and is everywhere indivisibly present in all his works. He is transcendent above all his works, even while he is imminent within them. Verse 1. Let's look at verse 2. So Psalm 8, verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, first, when I was reading through this, I look at verse 1, the magnificence and glory of God. And then verse 3 talks about how he, uh, his glory is displayed in the heavens as we look at the moon and the stars and the sun. And then we have it in this middle of this, between these verses, out of the mouth of babies and infants. What, how does this fit? As I was looking through this verse, I noticed that even God in his greatness often uses the weak things of the earth to defeat the strong. He uses the simple things to destroy the wise. Well, why is this verse put in, in the middle of this? Turn to Matthew 21 with me. We'll have a couple verses on here, but Matthew 21. And this, the whole first section of this chapter, one, verses 1 through 11, it has Christ when he's riding into donkey. So you're probably familiar with this passage, uh, often called the triumphal entry. So if we were to read through this, we won't, for time's sake, we won't read through verses 1 through 11. But if we were to read through, you would notice that they're throwing palm branches on the ground as Christ is riding into town on a donkey. And it says the crowd. So it doesn't differentiate between men, women, and children. The crowd and almost all of those that are present are shouting Hosanna to the son of David and, and, and throwing palm branches down and welcoming in the city. So if we were to read verses 1 through 11, we won't do that. So let's actually, uh, you won't have verse 12 on the screen, but let's pick up in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and brought in the temple. Okay, so this is where, remember, the uh, turns over the money changers, the tables? Right, so he's just welcoming into the town, all right? Yay, Hosanna. And then he goes into the temple, and 
that's the, first, the next recorded thing that we have. And what happens? Continuing on in verse 12. And all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the, sea, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Then we pick up, I think you have the verse 15 on the screen. But when the chief priests and the scribes, okay, the rulers, the religious rulers of that day, saw the wonderful things, or in their mind, not so wonderful things, that he did, and the, notice, the children crying out in the temple. So it was all of the crowd shouting Hosanna the son, uh, to the son of David. Now, the only ones left, the children, crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. They were angry at, at what they saw Christ doing. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, have you seen it? Have you never read? Well, that's kind of an insult because these were the religious leaders. They had studied God's word. They know exactly what it had said and read this before. Have you never read? And here we have the same saying that we just read in Psalm 8. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And then Christ leaves. Here in this example, he references back Psalm 8-2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, he silenced the enemies. Here's an example where Christ himself uses this, and even it says prepared praise. God had these children there and uses the weak and small children in this case to silence these ones that were being indignant and angry at what Christ had done. But also consider that phrase, nursing babies, babies who can't even talk. John Kelvin said that the process of the conception and birth of an infant displays God's splendor so clearly that even a nursing infant brings down to the ground the furry of God's enemies. Now, my wife and I have been privileged enough to have five kids. I was able to see each one of those births. An amazing miracle of life. The biological process of birth is amazing. At nine months, I'm going to read this here. At nine months after conception, the baby's brain sends a hormone through the placenta and into the mother's pituitary gland. Although it was a complicated chemical, its message is simple, I'm ready, it's time. All of the baby's complex systems, lungs, heart, gastrointestinal system, nervous system, brain, are ready to make it on their own. The baby's skull is not yet fused so that it can be pliable enough to fit through the birth canal. As the process starts, the baby's adrenal glands add a shot of stress hormones to help the baby cope. The child will not breathe until it has cleared the birth canal. If it breathed too soon, it would suffocate, but if it waited too long, it would suffer brain damage. Just before the mother and child separate, the newborn gets a last-minute blood transfusion through the umbilical cord. The placenta has stored the nutrients the baby needs for this exact moment. Well, there's a whole lot more going on that we don't even understand. But the cry of the newborn baby displays God's strength, glory, and majesty. One commentator summed it up this way. Mighty Yahweh, whose majestic power and glory are displayed throughout the creation, is able to build the innocent weakness of these dependent babies into a powerful opposition to his enemies. I was even, as I was thinking of this this week, it's no wonder that Satan is trying to use abortion to limit and lessen God's glory through this miraculous of, of a baby's birth. Let's move on to verse 3. We look at verse 3, and David kind of takes a turn from his eyes, and he looks up to heaven. In verse 3, we, we read, When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. I was thinking of when I was reading this verse uh, throughout this week. I was, I was thinking of uh, a time when I was in northern Wisconsin. 
And it was, it was actually getting pretty close to the Canadian border. And so I was a camp counselor at Northland Camp, if you have heard of that, but it's in, in northern Wisconsin. And we would go out uh, as counselors on a weekend uh, when the campers were gone, so we had the weekend, we kind of do whatever we want, though. And we would go and sleep out underneath the stars. I think some brought tents, but for the most part, we're just sleeping out in a sleeping bag. And uh, you get cool, so make sure you bring a thick sleeping bag. Even in the summer in Wisconsin, it warms up to like 50, I think. Um, but we're, we're sleeping out under the stars, and there's not... There's not, like, man-made light for, for miles. I mean, we, you don't see it. So it is dark except for the moon and the stars. And we would just lay out underneath there, and the stars were so bright and brilliant. It was beautiful. I want to take for the next couple minutes, and I want us to try to grasp and understand how big God's creation is. So if you can process all this, I'm going to give you some numbers here. The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. That's 700 million miles per hour. I'm not sure I can understand what that actually means, but it's pretty fast. It's not a big deal for the moon since it is 250,000 miles from Earth. It only takes about 1.3 seconds for light to reach us from the moon. But the sun is so far away, 93 million miles away, from the Earth that it takes about eight minutes for the light from the sun to reach us. That means the light that you see now, as we look outside, it took eight minutes for that light to reach Earth. It would take the same sun about six hours to make it to the furthest planet in our solar system, Pluto, if you still call that a planet. As it keeps going, it would take about 4.3 years to get to the nearest star. It would take that light about 75,000 years to get to the most distant stars in our galaxy. As it continued, the light from the sun, to get to the nearest large galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy, it would take about 2.2 million years traveling at 186,000 miles per second. You comprehend that? Me neither. So when it said, and God made light, that's no big deal, right? So as we go through this, I'm going to give you a couple pictures. So we can have that first slide. I'm going to give you a couple pictures that we're going to try to wrap our mind around. And again, we're talking about the greatness of our God and the majesty of our Creator. So this here, the diameter of the earth is 7,926, a little less than 8,000 miles. The diameter of the earth, 8,000 miles. The diameter of the sun is 865,000 miles. So it's about 109 times larger than the earth. Okay, so that picture is kind of trying to display. And you guys have been to science class, so this is not completely new. But if the earth was the size of a, now Louis Giglio, you may have seen his video. He did the earth if the size was a golf ball. I don't know if some of you have seen that. I couldn't be, I had to be original. So I did, because I've coached volleyball for 15 years. If the earth were the size of a volleyball, all right, how big is the sun in comparison to that? So I try to measure it off, and I've, I've done some math in my day. And to the best of my knowledge, if the size of the earth, if we could shrink the size of the earth down to a volleyball, the sun, we would basically need enough volleyballs to fill this entire room that we're sitting in, and that's how big the sun would be in comparison to the earth. That's pretty amazing. Now, you may be aware that uh, Betelgeuse, have you heard of that, is six times larger than the sun. That's just, that's just in our little galaxy. Okay, let's give me the next picture. So this photo, too, is the Milky Way galaxy. Now, I put the word sun on there. You can see that little speck below the word sun. It's a little blurry. It's the best picture I could find. That's the sun, all right? The earth isn't even visible on this picture. 
There is a display of our Milky Way galaxy, and the sun is that little speck. All right, give me the, give me the next slide there, number three. So this here is the picture. I'm going to read this. Galaxies everywhere. As far as the NASA Hubble Space Telescope can see, this view of nearly 10,000 galaxies is the deepest visible light image of the cosmos, called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. This galaxy study view represents a deep core sample of the universe cutting across billions of light years. So those are not stars. Those are thousands of galaxies. Remember the galaxy that we just showed, the Milky Way galaxy, and how big our Earth is compared to the sun, and yet how small that sun was in scope of the Milky Way galaxy. Are you starting to get the picture? Are you starting to feel a little bit more like that beetle um, on the ground? This image required 800 exposures taken over the course of 400 Hubble orbits around Earth. The total amount of exposure time was 11 days taken between September 24th, 2003 and January 16th, 2004. Unbelievable. 10,000 galaxies. Okay, give me the next slide. For this, this next picture, these last two were just amazing. And even this picture, as it showed on my screen, didn't really give it justice. And I'm sure the picture doesn't give it justice to what it actually is. So I'll put these last two on here. This is a 28th anniversary picture for NASA. So the Hubble Space Telescope took this amazing and colorful image of the Lagoon Nebula. The whole nebula, about 4,000 light years away, is an incredible 55 light years wide and 20 light years tall. This image shows only a small part of this turbulent star formation region. Okay, I read through that and I was like, okay, how big is a light year again? A light year is just under 6 trillion miles. All right? So it is 55 light years wide, so we're talking over 300 trillion miles is this display of unbelievably beautiful star formation. We've only seen a glimpse of the glory and majesty of God. It's no wonder that I can't look on him and live. Give me that last slide. This, this one was kind of cool. Butterfly-shaped winged like, that's really nice. Actually, this is a rolling cauldron of gas heated to nearly 20,000 degrees. I'm sure they estimate that. Somehow, to 20,000 degrees, the gas is tearing across space at more than 590,000 miles per hour. That's unbelievably beautiful. Quite warm and moving quite fast. Fast enough to travel from the Earth to the moon in 24 minutes. John Piper these words, if you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with a streetlight. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with little fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. So here we summarize kind of the first three verses of Psalm 8, and we, and we try to take in the majesty and glory of God, and I have a hard time comprehending this. And then we come to verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And our answer is nothing. Who am I? What, what, what am I? How foolish of me to think, I am pretty great. 
And when, I, when, I, when I've been processing throughout this week and trying to imagine, understand how big God's creation is, let alone who God and the majesty that he is, I felt pretty small. So when I try to go and uh, bench 200 pounds, which I don't think I can do anymore, wow, you can bench 200 pounds. Did you just realize, did you just understand everything that we were just talking about? 200 pounds doesn't really seem like very much, does it? Or I was thinking about, I used to ride bikes with Nathan. We need to do that again, by the way, Nathan. We used to ride bikes. I don't ride as much as I used to, and I actually ride my mountain bike more. But let's say I go out on, on my bike, and I ride 20 miles, and I average 18 to 20 miles per hour on my bike. I am feeling pretty good. Like, I am fit. I bet you most of you couldn't keep up with me. I can't keep up with Nathan, but. Well, uh, and, and here, as I'm bragging about how great I am, this cauldron of gas says, yeah, well, I travel 590,000 miles per hour. I'm really not that great, am I? How foolish of me to think that I am something great or worth much of anything. And so that's why we sometimes need to realize who we are and that we really, what is man that you are mindful of him? And I see myself as very small and insignificant. And I think that's when God puts us in the place where we can understand our real purpose in our real meaning for existence, and then we find worth. But I think the great encouraging words that we have are in verse 5. I don't think I have that on the screen. You can look Psalm 8, 5, where it talks about that God chose us. So after all of God's greatness and majesty, beyond our wildest understanding and comprehension, I can't even fathom half of what I've even said this morning. I, I, I can't comprehend it. What is man that you are mindful of him? You know that God never stops thinking about us? And he cares for us. And then in verse 5, it talks about how he crowns us with glory and honor. I am nothing. I am insignificant. And yet the God and the creator of the universe knows everything about me and never stops thinking about me. That's powerful. Despite your insignificance, God placed significance on you, and that makes all the difference. So before we leave today, and you just say, wow, God is big, and Mike says we're a bunch of beetles laying on our backs. <laughs> Let me give you some uh, four applications, and these will be quick. Let me give you four applications or thoughts of a response of what we should have because of the greatness and majesty of our God. Number one, we serve a great and mighty God, a God worthy of our worship. Now, you guys are here this morning on a Sunday morning to do exactly that, to worship our great God. But if this is just limited to a Sunday morning, you come and put in your hours or two of worship and you don't the rest of the week, you're, we're missing it. Worship should be part of who we are. When we understand how majestic and great our God is, this should be part of when we walk out here, God, what a beautiful creation that you have. And it is part of who we are. In your devotion time, in the mornings, in your prayer time, uh, a couple months ago when Jeff was going through this series, we talked about Acts. That A there, going through a, a prayer time, A stood for what? A adoration. Boy, Psalm 8 would be a great place just to read through that in adoration. That is a prayer, song. Read back to God. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Worship is not just taking place on Sunday morning. But if we were to worship, truly worship God every day of the week, throughout the day, when we come in on Sunday mornings, I'm telling you what, 
when we come in corporately together worship because we've been worshiping individually all week, I think it would be something spectacular. When we realize that this God, creator of all of this that we can hardly comprehend and wrap our mind around, came to this earth and took on flesh and gave his life for us, our only response is to bow down and fall on our face and knees and worship our God. Number two, I notice that our God has no limits. Have you ever limited God, maybe in, in your view of God, and say, God isn't big enough to solve this problem in my life, or God doesn't know what's going on here, and, and we've limited, our, our minds have limits to things, but God has no limits. Just as there are no bounds to his presence with me, there are no limits to his knowledge of me. J.R. Packer writes in his book, Knowing God, living becomes an awesome business when you realize that you spend every moment of your life in the sight and company of an omniscient and omnipresent God. God has no limits. Number three, our God, clothed in majesty and the creator of the universe, can be trusted with my troubles and difficulties. What are you worrying about today? What is it that is in your life that is causing you great anxiety and worry? Maybe it's a health issue, dealing with cancer, financial stress and pressures, family conflict, whatever it is. doesn't lessen those things. Those are weights that we carry. But when we understand the greatness and majesty of God and who God is and the fact that he cares for us, he thinks about me, he formed me in my mother's womb, he knows everything about me. When our focus is that, our, our problems that often seem like mountains can fade off in the distance when we see the greatness and glory and majesty of God. Why do I worry when I know that the creator of the universe loves me and wants the best for me? There are trillions upon trillions of stars in our galaxy. There are thousands of galaxies with billions of stars. And God knows them by name. That's incomprehensible. Don't you think God knows what's going on in your life and he cares? Absolutely. Number four, I find my worth not in what I do or how I look, but in who I am in Christ. When you understand the scope of creation and realize that I really am nothing, I'm, I'm barely anything on this earth. And the earth is barely anything in the scope of all of creation. And yet, I see that I am loved and God cares for me. I find my worth not in temporal things, not in the things of this world. I find my worth in Christ. The fact that I was created in his image. What a great thought for us this morning. I don't know what may have triggered different thoughts in your head or what you take away from this. But I hope that as we leave here this morning, our, our worship and, and, and maybe slight our view of God is maybe a little bit bigger and brighter and better than maybe than when we came in. Because our God is great and powerful and majestic. I remember the time I took a trip to Colorado. I think my oldest son was with me. 
and we were doing a little camp team with a bunch of youth, and we, we had this trip, and it was about a three, four-mile hike, and we were climbing up in the mountains in Colorado. I didn't really know where I was going. I was following these different markers on the trees, which ended up being interesting on the way back when it was dark, but that's another story. So we're, we're traveling up this mountain, and we're having to cut across a few things, climb up a mountain, cut across a little valley, climb up another mountain. So we kind of knew the general direction where we were heading. And we hit this, we got high enough where we hit snow. I wasn't expecting that. So then we're like trucking in like a foot of snow. Then we got past the snow, and there's a whole bunch of beautiful trees. Then we got past the trees. We came to this rock formation. Basically, we had risen above all the other mountains in this mountain range in Colorado. And uh, we climbed up this, and there were probably 10, 12, I don't really remember, somewhere around there with us. And we climbed up to the very top of this rock cliff formation and by the time we got up there, you can't really see, because you've got to be paying attention, because it was dangerous, and I, I probably shouldn't have taken them where I did, but in case, we get to the top of this, and basically we're standing on this flat rock, and if you look over, it's, ooh, that's scary. So we stayed away from that edge. But we circled around 360, and nothing blocked our view. It was probably the most unbelievable sight that I have ever seen. And, we, and so as a group, we sat there, stood there, and sang how great they are. And it was just emotional. It was just an unbelievable experience of how great is our God. And that was just sitting on the mountains in Colorado. Can we imagine the beauty and majesty of what heaven is going to be like? Can we imagine the beauty and majesty of our great God? That's exciting. I hope you're as excited as I am. Let's pray. God, we humbly enter in your presence. And I know we don't even understand the depth and the degree of your greatness and majesty. But God, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us. And even as we contemplate these things of how great your creation is, how magnificent you are. God, we want to fall down and worship you. May we do that today with our families throughout our week when we're at work, when we're with family, that we, that we worship your great name, that we promote your kingdom and your creation and not try to build our own. God, bless our time. Thank you for how great and wonderful you are. In Jesus' name.